Welcome. We're super excited today to be talking to Teresa and Matt. And I'm Julia. I'm here with Shelby. Hello. And we are talking today about Matt's Place Foundation and a really exciting topic that I think is so important and happy to round out our podcast series this year with this topic. So welcome, Teresa and Matt. Thank you so much for having us. I'm so excited to be here with you. Yeah, thank you. Matthew is on with us, but he's not going to talk as much because he's experiencing some distress from talking too much already with ALS. So um, I'll explain a little bit more of that as we get it going, but just want you to know he's here giving us moral support too. So thank you. And then while we're at it here, Teresa, do you want to maybe do a quick intro about who you are <laughs> and what you guys so are doing? Yeah, my name is Teresa Whitlock Wild. Um, my husband, Matthew Wild, was diagnosed with ALS in 2015. He was 41 years old, and it's one of those situations where we actually weren't married at the time. We, we'd just barely been dating a few months when he got diagnosed. So you can imagine um, a lot of unknowns. A myotrophic lateral sclerosis, or Lou Gehrig's disease, however you want to refer to it, or ALS, how most people refer to it, is most widely known now because of the ice bucket challenge, right? How many of you guys all participated? Um, I wasn't, I can't raise my hand on that one. Um, but ironically, six months to that ice bucket challenge um, viral explosion that happened, Matthew himself was diagnosed. So we were told it was terminal. We were told he had three to five years to live. And we were told he needed to get his affairs in order. As you can see, it's been more than three to five years. Here we are coming up on year nine. Matthew is still able to speak, um, eat. He's breathing on his own, um, but we are experiencing a lot more progression with the disease now. So he's not able to walk. He's not able to lift his arms or any of that. I often tell people <clears throat> to explain ALS is very difficult. I can give you the scientific version or I can give you the layman's terms. So in layman's terms, because I'm not a scientist. So ALS, uh, there are neurons in your brain and spinal column, upper and lower neurons that send signals to your muscles, your voluntary muscles throughout your body to do what they need to do, right? So as I'm moving and, and, and exercising and doing all the things my body does, those muscles break down and they pull in the nutrients to repair. That's how our body's designed. With ALS, that neuron that sends the signal specifically to repair the muscle that's the neuron that starts atrophy, that signal dies. And so there's a signal being sent to the muscles, hey, repair, repair, we want to stay strong, but they're not getting that signal. And so the muscle slowly atrophies. Now, the problem with ALS is it's so challenging to, for research and scientists because of multiple reasons. They don't know what causes it, what triggers it, what starts it. Only 10% of people with ALS are actually familial, where it's a gene that runs in the family, spread down through the generations. The other 90% are sporadic, all different ages, ethnicities, um, locations around the world, it doesn't matter. And so what is causing that 90% of people that are sporadically diagnosed with this disease? That is a huge issue. The other issue is awareness of the disease. 
many general practitioners have roughly nine minutes to do an assessment in their clinical care practice. That's not enough time for a neurological um, evaluation when somebody's experiencing issues. The other thing is many doctors don't wanna go straight to ALS, right? They're not gonna go straight to the worst case scenario. They're gonna to try to find um, what else it could be. So pinched nerves, carpal tunnel, knee surgeries, neck surgeries, weakness, exercise, physical therapy, all these things are addressed first. Lab work done, but generally to get an ALS diagnosis is a way to find out everything it's not, right? They're going to do an MRI, they're going to do a full blood work. Um, if my boss, Dr. Isaacs, was sitting here, he'd speak to this much more eloquently. But from a patient and caregiver perspective of this, this diagnosis becomes immediately overwhelming at the time of diagnosis. So here's some more fun stats for you. On average, it takes 12 to 24 months just to get a diagnosis. Matthew was not one of those statistics. It only took him three weeks. Why? He had a really great doctor, had been in great communication with his doctor, and honestly, his symptoms were far enough along that we could find, we you know, could start narrowing it down. So when Matthew was diagnosed, Instantly, we found out he's a former Marine, right? He's a, he, he's a Marine. He is a Marine. He's a badass. What are we talking about? And because of that, the VA says, hey, we can't say we gave you ALS. We can't say that you serving our country was the cause of this. But two out of every three people diagnosed are veterans. And depending what your role is during your time serving your country, um, the statistics can increase your, your prevalence. So that's challenging, right? So the VA says, okay, we're gonna offer support, we're gonna help you. And when Matthew was diagnosed, that's what we learned was the VA was gonna be this huge support to us, which was great. Then our next question was, what about other people? And the more we dived into it, the more we started to kind of see a really big picture. So depending on where you live, the average person has to drive well over a hundred miles just to get to their ALS clinical care team. The disease is going to continue progressing. Currently, there's six drugs on the market, FDA approved to slow progression of ALS down. The majority of those drugs are geared towards those um, familial types of ALS. There's three drugs on the market. They're called the three R's right now. And if patients can get access to them, they can significantly slow the disease down. And by significantly, I mean three to six months. But when you're looking at a diagnosis of three to five years, three to six months seems like a lot. But so when Matthew was diagnosed, we were trying to figure out well, how do these families cope? Now we, we've been very blessed. We have what are called resources. We have, we have our needs met. So we're able to then live a full life, but other families are struggling with just the bare basics. At the point of diagnosis, generally, the person living with the disease will have quit their job or will have to quit their job. Their income is instantly cut down. But the thing with ALS is you're going to need a caregiver because this disease is progressive. Matthew's disease started in his hands, in his pinkies. Within a year, he's wheelchair bound. Within a year after that, we were fully using every kind of lift system to move him where we needed to move him, respiratory equipment, all um, caucuses, suction, ventilators, wheelchair accessible vehicles. Uh, you can see our bedroom behind us. We have lots of uh, equipment, we have hospital bed. All of those things 
take resources, right? So the VA says, here, we're going to give you these things. And the process is not easy. Please don't let me just make it sound like, oh, we're just going to get these things. Nothing in life is easy, but the VA has certainly done in our area, has done a wonderful job of making sure we have what we need to be supported through this journey. Uh, the regular civilian, though, they, they don't even come close to getting access to support and services that they need and education of how to plan ahead. So when Matthew was diagnosed, our first question was, what about others? And we wanted to jump in. And so we started Matt's place within several weeks of his diagnosis, having no idea what we were doing. I don't think we know what we're doing yet, but it's been a journey. And one of the things I love about it is, you know, last year, Matthew and I were talking and he said, if I had the chance to go back and never have ALS, I still wouldn't do it because of all the people we've helped. And that to me says a lot because as he's progressed and his body has completely changed from what it used to be, he's accepted that this is his journey with grace, dignity. Don't tell him I said this, but humor, don't tell him because then, you know, I can't live it down if I tell him he's that thing. And he's just a joy to be around, right? So we wanted to just take our experiences, the lessons we've learned, and help others. Stop there and let you maybe ask some questions because I know I've just been rattling off here. No, I, I didn't want to interrupt you because you just, it's such an incredibly amazing story. And I think you two are just amazing. I mean, it's, I love on your website, I think it says Uncrushable Spirit. Yes. And I, I've thought about it a lot, actually, how, you know, you could have gone a different direction, right? This, this could have been something that did crush you. And the fact that you said, all right, we're going to help other people is, is just mind blowing. And you two are amazing. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I, I, don't ever know what to say when people say that, because the reality is, is yeah, this, this disease is incredibly hard, but when you can lean into the community you're in and help, it, it kind of softens the blow of the things you can't handle, right? The things you don't have any say in, the things you have no control in. And when we started Matt's Place, we started with bracelet sales around town. You know, small town, we're going to do a little fundraiser. Again, we didn't know what we were doing, so we were really new into all of this. And immediately there was a young a young woman, by young I mean in her mid-50s, which is I still think is young. And she had been symptomatic for two years, got diagnosed, was no longer able to walk. And her husband was carrying her, dragging her around the house under her armpits. Know, down the stairs just to get around. We came in and they had a floor plan. They had one of those floor plans that you just cannot remodel well. And all she wanted was a ramp to get in the back of the yard. She had done all of this gardening. It was her passion. She loved it. She didn't care about the front. She just wanted to be able to get in the back. And with our bracelet sales, we were able to hire a contractor, go and have one installed. And just the joy and the happiness on her face of just being able to get outside herself, right? And not have somebody have to drag her in and out because the wheelchair wasn't going to be able to get in and out. So that was an eye-opening experience, but then we took it one step further. And I want to backtrack. When when Matthew and I started Matt's Place, we had, I had, I had jokingly maybe said, we should build smart homes. Like I knew what that meant. I didn't, <laughs> um, honestly, but 
but it was an inspirational moment that gave a lot of people excitement and hope that we could focus on the things that we could control. So we went to his family and friends and said, we want to start this nonprofit. And that's how it kind of launched. We knew the mission was to help families. We knew it was going to be around housing. Here's why. Remember when I said at a diagnosis, somebody is going to lose their, that person's going to lose their income if they're working, right? Right. Um, so that is a huge issue. And then their caregiver is going to lose their income. That is almost right as at the diagnosis. And so they're losing their income at the time that their needs have increased exponentially. Uh, wheelchair accessible vehicles are in high demand, very expensive, hard to find, right? Do you think you're going to qualify for a loan for a fifty dollars to $100,000 special needs vehicle if you don't have income anymore? No. Yeah, doubtful. Doubtful. Now you're going to need a lot of those tools. You're going to have to remodel your home just to be able to get in and out safely. And as you and I know, for every inch off the ground, to make that ramp safe, we got to go a foot out. What's the average house have? What, three steps average? That's 36 feet of ramp. On average, you're looking at $25,000 to $5,000 for a ramp. That's cash. I'm sorry, insurance isn't going to cover that. Your housing insurance doesn't say, oh, I'm sorry, you have a new life situation. We're going to help. We'll, we'll get you a ramp. No, they don't do that. Like, too bad. That's on you. Oh, you want to get to the bathroom? You want to have a little dignity and independence? Again, going to have to come out of your pocket. So you're looking at bathroom remodels. Not just a remodel. You're going to have to remodel for full paralysis because that's what ALS is. ALS is full paralysis throughout the entire body, except with full sensation, because it's not actually a paralysis. It's an atrophy, a, a weakness. So as this person is progressing in their disease, they have to have somebody moving them, transferring them, scratching them, itching them, dressing them, feeding them, haircuts. I, yeah, even picking ears, picking noses, picking teeth. In other areas, <laughs> uh, Matthew and I are up. We uh, we've taken our relationship to a whole level I didn't know was possible. Um, and he still smiles about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so these all cost a lot of money, and the the average expenses for a year of ALS is estimated to be two hundred and fifty to three hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know very many families that are going to have that level of resources to navigate a disease like this. And here's the clincher. You have people that get diagnosed with ALS, and it's quick, it's fast. From diagnosis to death, it's a year. And that is traumatic, devastating. There is a lot of PTSD involved for that whole family in that situation. It is traumatic to explain what that situation looks like to them. Nobody can keep up on a disease that moves that fast, right? Then you got the second types, which are the averagers, the, the three to five years, people that will live three to five years and we're going to navigate what that looks like. And you got people like Matt who have lived over five years. As research catches up, that bell curve of that three to five years living from diagnosis to death, it's starting to spread. So it's not three to five years now. Now the chances of living more than five years is increasing. But their resources and access to resources and tools hasn't increased for the families and their situation hasn't changed. We just extended it. And so for me, I think we start with the basics. We cannot expect people to thrive if they're barely surviving. So with a diagnosis like ALS, what do they need? 
They need accessible housing. They have to be able to get in and out, right? That's basic, the most basic of needs. Two, I would like a shower. I don't know about you, but I don't want to rely on a bed bath from somebody every single day for the rest of my life. Um, being able to get to a commode, bidets are wonderful things. I think everybody should have them and Americans should really lean into that because bidets should be everywhere. That's my sarcastic coming through. But um, <clears throat> the other aspect is helping people have an understanding and a better perspective of the challenges these face, families face because suddenly they have to adapt to a new normal that the world's not adapting for them. And they're the ones that have to figure it out. And so the only way we can help these families is through community education and changing the way we think about disability, accessibility, and inclusivity. Uh, yeah, and I mean, there's so much to learn, right? And Julia and I are from the design and construction, the built environment community, I think, so many of us are privileged enough to not have to know what those kind of accommodations look like or, you know, they're just not in our everyday environments. Do you want to touch really quickly? And you've mentioned things like the bathroom and designing for a type of paralysis. But what does that accessibility and accommodation look like when it's compared to your traditional house? And oh, yeah. how, how are we designing these spaces to work better for people of any ability for a long time? I would say space is the biggest thing. So when you're talking about a power wheelchair, you know, it's more than just the doors being 36 inches. It's thinking about that. And I don't know the correct terms. I'm sorry. But what is the term when you have to go down a hallway and take a sharp right turn, right? If you're in a power wheelchair and let's just say you're using your eyes to drive that chair, you're, you you're don't have much room for mistakes, and so when you take that sharp corner, those sharp corners are not easy for people that are in wheelchairs that have trachs or tilted back with equipment on the back of their chair. It extends their lengths. Bathrooms should have at least, at least five feet radius in front of the toilet so that families can have, um, the caregiver is helping transfer because that's the reality. There will be at least one caregiver helping um, mid to late stage of this disease. So you need enough room for two people plus a lot of stuff. Foyer lifts, wheelchairs, shower chairs, tilting shower chairs. You know, like I said, the bidets that can just go on top of the toilet. When I say bidet, I don't mean it's own separate in toilet type sand. I mean something that can be easily adapted to the toilet. When we think about ALS or progressive diseases, we're looking at transitions, trip hazards. If somebody's going to fall, which way is the door going, right? So in ALS, I tell people, if you're going to keep your regular door in your bathroom, please make sure it comes out instead of in. So if somebody falls, fire department can get in without having to tear your whole house up. <laughs> Those are things that people just don't think about, right? Then we have to look at resources. So if we're talking about brand new builds, making sure that there's enough space for people to be able to do what they need to do. But if it's retrofitting a current space, that's a little different, right? And and we tell that to families all the time. You've got to know what your budget is. What are your priorities? What are your must-haves, needs? And then what are your wants, right? So with Matt's Place, when we built the first home in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, we started by reaching out to our community leaders. And we said, hey, we want to build this home to serve the community. They went around to their uh, associated general contractors and all the different groups and said, who wants in? Um, 
for whatever reason, people really resonated with our story, thankfully. And we had over 116 contractors come together to participate, build, share, um, donate to make this home. And it's a stick-built home, three-bedroom, two-and-a-half bath home in Fort Wayne, Idaho. Uh, we started in February, broke ground in April, had the house almost done by August, and had the family in by the end of October. In that home, it's low-maintenance backyard, which is helpful, right? When you're talking about somebody who has a lot of needs, caregiver might not have the time to also be mowing and all that fun stuff. The other aspect of the home, though, is to give independence to the person with the disease for as long as possible. So when we talk about building smart homes, we're talking about designing homes for these very specific issues. So if you have a progressive disease, and I said this earlier, and I'm sorry I didn't complete the thought, if we have 10 people in a room with ALS, all 10 of them present differently, progress at different speeds, it's hard to navigate. But we know that the journey is about the same, right? No matter if it starts in your hands, the bulbar region of your mouth, the respiratory, the legs, limb onset, doesn't matter where it starts, the end result is still the same. Progressive loss of muscular function throughout the body, including voluntary movement, talking, walking, eating, swallowing, and then breathing. Right? It's the entire body. Now, we can look out throughout history, and we can especially look now to so many inspirational people living with ALS. Why are they able to live such long lives with ALS? Well, they have some things other people don't. They have resources. They have a care team. Not all of that uh, care was put on one person. You have a care team because it does require a team. They have an accessible home that they will get in and out. They have the tools and devices that they need to make everybody safe. Foyer lifts, sit to stand, ceiling lifts, power wheelchairs, eye gates, alternative and augmented communication devices, all these different ways. So in the Matt's Place Core Lane home, when families move into the home, it's free of charge. And the person with the disease is able to use, doesn't matter, they can use their voice, they can use a cell phone, they can use a tablet, they can use their eye gaze devices and control their environment. So they can open the doors, turn on the lights, get the blinds automated. So if you couldn't move anything but your eyes, would you want somebody by your side 24 hours a day doing everything for you? Or would you want to find ways to be as independent as possible? Technology is the bridge to that. So if you have an environment that you can completely control as well as possible, meaning you're using your eyes and you want to switch the TV station, you want to turn the ceiling fan on, you want to turn the fireplace on, you want to go in the backyard, you can do all of those things without ever lifting a feet. So how did your vision, I mean, you started with bracelets. How did you go from bracelets to smart homes? Like, what was that like? <laughs> like yeah. you, We're still you learning. You said you wanted to do smart homes, then it just, it, like, it just happened. Yeah, no, um, Matthew was phenomenal at uh, reaching out to people, networking. He's just a really likable guy, too. And so he was born and raised in Coeur d'Alene, just had that really great community support. So I think... That was the initial kind of energy behind the movement was getting a home in Fort Elaine to serve the community of ALS families, to keep them from being bankrupted, to keep them from being house poor or, or having to put themselves financially at risk to get the things they needed this home is meant to serve that community. 
we started with networking, collaboration, team building, and telling our story. And now we went over to Portal or Spokane in 2018, 19-ish, 2019, and COVID supply chains, labor issues, whatever, every single thing that could go wrong just slowed our progress. The second house in Stick Stickbilt, we partnered with Andy Barrett, Russ Vaughan, Baker Construction, DCI Engineering, a lot of really powerful, smart, brilliant people in our area to try to take it to that next level. And that's what really excites me is thinking about how can we live and thrive no matter what our challenge is, right? So when we think of Stephen Hawkins, brilliant physicist with ALS for 50 years, published books, was a motivational, well, not a motivational speaker, but he got up on stage and spoke. He did all the things. Why? How was he able to live like that, right? He had all the tools he needed to do the things he was passionate about. And that's what we need to think about when we think about inclusivity is making sure that everybody has equal seat at the table. So I totally went off on a soapbox there. What was the question? No, it was, it's warranted. I think it's so important. And I, I think it's important too, that people understand more about it. So like you, you touched on that and understanding the the range and the variability. And I also find in design in particular, like there's things uh, that designers will do because they should, or it was in an old spec, or it just kind of was the status quo without really thinking about how that might impact people. So some of the stuff you're talking about not only applies to people with ALS, but like people who are aging in their homes or, mm -hmm. you know, older adults or um, people who might have other kinds of issues. And so I, I think looking at design inclusively in a lot of those ways you already mentioned, makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. And also, I think it's not only commendable, but it says a lot about you two of realizing that, yes, this is going to change our lives. And you, instead of looking inwardly and thinking about, you know, like how only you're going to change your own lives and the changes that you need to make and considering yourself, you looked outwardly and said, you know, we're not the only people facing these problems. How can we help our community of not only locally, but the community of people with ALS, the families of people with ALS. I know you've touched, and we've talked about this before, about being a caregiver and the impacts of that on your family. But I just think it's really special that you saw this problem as something that you guys can face together. And you went out and said, you know, we're going to help people in a big way. You did jump from making bracelets <laughs> to building houses. But I just think that's so special. And, you know, this story needs to be heard by people. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. No, I appreciate the chance to even just tell the story about, you know, I tell people, Matthew and I are very close. We really are. I mean, when I say how well he handles this, I really do mean that. He, he really is grateful and kind and he's just so compassionate. And we have our needs met. We I have a caregiver during the week so I can work. We have a night nurse so I can get some sleep a couple nights a week. We're working on finding care so that I can make sure and have quality time with my kids. I'm almost nine years into this. I've learned a lot. And one of the things I've learned is we're asking the people that haven't lived it how to design it instead of the people that live it. So Matt's yeah. place, one, the Spokane house, we made a lot of mistakes on. We didn't know. 
And the second house, that's a prototype with a lot of people and hands-on involvement. We made mistakes in that one too. We're going to, and we're going to learn and get better as we go. Not No sense in having that paralyze us and not doing anything. <laughs> that play on words. Uh, we don't, it's not about knowing all the answers. It's about, we're trying to create significant change so that families that are in the situations where their resources aren't being met, we're helping them know where to use it. That's the most important um, that they need, you know, and the medications and research are absolutely important. Families can't even get out of their house. And it does no good to push research and medication, yeah. right? If they have nothing to look forward to, there's no purpose. There's nothing for them to be living for. Their world gets very, very small, angry, bitter, and the caregivers as well. So we have to find different solutions with less money, less people, less resources. That's reality what we're facing. You touched on it. There's 10,000 people retiring every single day right now. It's called the silver tsunami for a reason. There are a ton of people retiring, but we do not have the people, the resources, money, time, space to accommodate their needs as it continues to grow over the next decade or two. So we have to find different solutions. We have to keep people in their house. They have to be safe, right? That's a priority. Yeah. So yeah. I know because I've I've learned a lot the last few months about this, but I'm I know a bit about Matt's Place 2.0 and the upcoming 3.0. Do you want to talk a little bit about 2.0 and maybe some lessons y'all learned and then the big audacious goals as Andy calls them for um 3.0? Sure. So the 2.0 was, uh, oh, wow, talk about community endeavor. We were gifted a lot for free from the Eastern Washington uh, Catholic Charities of Spokane. I think that's their official term. I refer to them as the Spokane Catholic Charities. But they donated a lot to us on Francis Avenue up north Spokane. And we were working with Miller Hole Architects out of Seattle. And these are award, like, internationally award-winning architects and they are focused on sustainability eco-friendly sustainability environmentally friendly forest managery all the all the checks of the boxes right they're focused on better builds for the environment the planet the people that live in them um so we really liked that they wanted to use less products with the less toxic um materials in them we use CLT, which is cross-laminated timber. As you know, it is healthier for the forest to go in and pull out the smaller trees and let the bigger trees thrive. And that's what cross-laminated timber does. Andy Barrett and his team are working on residential and improving um, those builds. And how we can take that idea and make it accessible and have all the needs met, including the technology and home automation. So 2.0, labor of love, lots of people jumped in and lots of issues. Lessons learned, gosh, that's hard. Um, don't try to do a project during a pandemic. It's really difficult, just so you know. Um, yeah, that's don't, a good one. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I think everybody should have just taken a long vacation. But really, it's amazing knowing that when you go out in the community, you tell the stories and people want to help be a part of it. It's, it's a beautiful thing. The first family moved in in the summer and he loves technology. So he is just absolutely loving being secure in this home. He doesn't have to worry about his fixed income and his rent having continuously gone up. 
which was his reality. It's the first time he's gotten to have his family near him because he's lived in a studio apartment for eight years. And now all of a sudden, his family from Seattle can come and his nieces and nephews are staying with him. That's most than he's had in almost a decade. He's able to use the technology so he can use his eyes and we have all different types of devices and switches. He uses a quad stick. We're going to be getting him a glass house device here pretty soon. But yeah, he can control the gate that opens the gate, undeadbolt the doors, the windows, the blinds, you name it. And uh, he can even control the solar panels and understanding where the energy is being used. What, it, what a huge blessing for him, right? A lot of that stress has gone down. And he's not worrying about just trying to survive. And suddenly, you know, he's making vacation plans with family and friends again. And he's involved with his college buddies' sports activities. What's quality of life to you? What do you want to be able to do? And when something takes that away from you, how defeating that must feel. How I couldn't imagine, right? And yeah, that's what this is about, is, is helping people. That's amazing. And I, I think, too, I just wanted to touch on something that we've talked about before and mention it. We're sponsored by the Northwest Energy Efficiency Alliance. And so I'm going to pop in an energy term here. But the fact that these are net zero moving forward, meaning they are not really taking any energy from the grid and it's all generated there on site. We've talked before about like because of all this equipment, some people are on ventilators if the power goes out or there's some kind of rolling blackout or something like that, then you know that there's backup power, which so important in our yeah. world. So you important. Believe in our in our I'm on Facebook support groups that are closed for ALS, and there are conversations of people saying, "I'm in Tornado Alley. I have a hurricane coming. I have a huge storm coming in. What do I do when the power goes out? What do I do? What do I do?" In 2015, we had a windstorm here. I don't know if you guys remember it, but the power in Spokane, I live in Coeur d'Alene, power in Spokane was knocked out for like a week in a lot of areas. An ALS patient doesn't have a week when they're reliant on ventilation. And so you've got about six hours of battery back out. That's it. So weather is playing a huge role in stress on these families. They're figuring out, like, what do we do when the power goes out? Not everybody has $2,500 cash to get an ambulance ride to go get where there's some battery backup generators. Those are real issues. And this house solves another one of those issues. And that is solar panel, solar power, battery backup generator. So when the power or any issues like that, the house has an intranet, intranet, not internet, intra within the house um, system set up. Um, to keep them stable. Yeah. Yeah. And it really seems, I mean, Matt's Place Foundation as an organization and who you guys are, it seems like you're really addressing all of the things that it means to be human, right? You're addressing peace of mind, not only in an energy sense, but security for the families and the peace of mind and just knowing that you're going to be okay and can get through this, even though the outlook is indefinitely grim, right? I mean, the outlook is... But that's our world. That's the reality, right? We're all born. We're all going to die. We can't change. But what we can change is what happens in the middle. That dash. That dash is so important. And when families are getting the support, the services, the education to make the best decisions with the resources and information we've got, they'll do a heck of a lot better than expecting them and 
preferring them to just pull themselves up by the, their bootstraps and figure it out themselves. No, no, we can do better and we can do a lot better in the policies we make when we're all working towards it together instead of just saying, oh, that's not my problem. I'm only focused on this. So housing, how we build the houses, the products we use, where we're building them, it all matters. Of course it matters. Of course it matters. Yeah. And you're offering these resources. In a moment here, I want you to tell us where we can find those. But just as my closing thought here, and I'm sure Julia has one as well, like, your optimistic approach to this is really meaningful and it translates to just about everybody. And I just wanted to say thank you for being here today. I think um, I just have our conversations, but I do it with a smile. So people just assume it's very, you know, oh, okay, she's smiling. No, these are hard topics, but they need to be talked about. They yeah. need to be talked about. And you do so in such an informative, you know, educational way that is welcoming and it feels accessible to people who may or may not know anything about it and are kind of afraid to learn about these things. When we talk about senior living, even, you know, we talk about inclusivity and keeping people engaged in their social communities and their network of people. And I think that's so important, but death and dying are uncomfortable things for a lot of people. And the more we're able to talk about it and normalize that these things happen and the more that we know, the better off we'll be. I think that's really important. Yeah. Well, I will say this. So you can find more information about us at mattsplacefoundation.org. It is M-A-T-T-S-P-L-A-C-E foundation.org. Just so you know, it's org. Matt's. You can find out more information there. We serve families currently in Idaho, Montana, and Washington, all families with ALS for accessibility needs. So we help with mortgage and rent assistance. We help with accessibility ramp grants towards ramps and bathroom remodels. We have several contractors that are our preferred contractors. So if you're in the area and able to help, they can help offer at discounts as well because we work with them so closely. And then the other thing I wanted to say was we are a 100% nonprofit. Nobody on our board makes money. All the money that comes in is going right back out into the community to serve them. We don't do small grants. I don't believe in these 100 to $500 grants for a lifetime. So we don't care what your finances are. We want to help solve. Uh, offer some support. For example, we have a grant request that came in for $10,000 for a ramp. If we can, our board can't cover that full amount, we try to find other people to help offset that cost. So again, it's taking that family from diagnosis to death and supporting them throughout all the areas that they're going to need um, to make that look as successful as we could possibly make that, whatever that is. So where, if people are just so ready to help if they want to donate where what can they do what, what can they do well, so you you mentioned uncrushable spirit my husband coined that term shortly after he was diagnosed we wrote a letter to his family and he just ended it with uncrushable spirit and something about that just really resonates with me because i i'm a mom and three kids right my body has changed my life has changed the way i think that who i am has changed uh, but the spirit of who I am really hasn't. And that's Matt. Um, you know, when Matthew and I were dating, he was my dancing partner. By the way, he was phenomenal. Oh, he could dance, two-step, jitterbug, you name it. Little old ladies, 90 years old, would come up and look at him and go, Matthew, will you dance with me? Um, yeah, just loved it. Anyway, so where was I going with all that? Um, I'm not sure. But I love it. Incrushable <laughs> spirit. Yes, uncrushable <laughs> spirit. Yeah. 
So we just love that phrase. So we have an Uncrushable Spirit donor wall on our website. You're welcome to make donations there if you'd like. We also, like I said, we give donations for rent mortgage assistance. We give grants towards bathroom remodels. We give grants towards our the two homes that are they're currently housed, but applications can be sent in. We also have a YouTube series called Matt's Place Foundation Hope and Housing Series. We just launched, launched our fifth episode. And next year, I'm hoping to have you ladies share your expertise in design with us on our series there. But that is to help families all over the country uh, with questions about accessibility, budgeting, things like that. So we hope that people will share and subscribe to that as well. So yeah, we're just just out there trying to make a difference and helping these pals and cows. That's what they're referred to as people with ALS and caregivers with ALS. So, and just trying to make the world a little better. Well, I love it. And I just want to put out there too, a lot of the folks who listen to this podcast are in the design and construction world. So as you design 3.0, 4.0, 5.0, and so on, if people were interested in donating their time or resources um, for those builds, would they just reach out to you on your website as well? Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, we're 100% nonprofit, so we don't move as fast as I like. But yeah, so if they want to reach out and they have in-kind donations like materials or labor or a skill that they think is really valuable that we could use, our 3.0 house is already in design as we speak with a committee of people and when we say audacious, we really do mean that. We want to take the design of a home for somebody that would live with ALS or any kind of debilitating or progressive disease and help make that look as Jetson-like as we can make it, right? So remember George Jetson? Like when we think about the future, why aren't we starting to think like that now? We're here. We have the ability to have a wheelchair that has arms on it. So the person who can't move, can't do anything, can literally control their environment, get the things they need with full independence. We have technology, we have the tools, we have the means. Now we just need to get it. And I'm thinking a house that is unlike anything we've ever seen before with robotics, with sensors, with ways to um, this family to know that their loved one is safe, but still has privacy. There's a lot that goes into it. But yeah, I'm really excited about what the future holds and... If anybody has interest in joining our team, or we have committees, we have volunteer opportunities, or we have board positions too. So yeah, we're we're looking for like-minded individuals who are passionate about making a difference in these people's lives. Well, I want to thank you both so much for being here with us today. And this is just, I don't know, it's so important. And right. special, too. Yeah. yeah, we can definitely tell that you're passionate about this, obviously, for many reasons. But I think that this message and this story will resonate with a lot of people. So we will continue to help you get the word out, not only through this podcast, but if there's any upcoming fundraising events or opportunities, we will make sure that those go on our website. And then if people have questions, they can also reach out to us through our platforms and we will direct you straight to Teresa and Matt. Yeah. That's awesome. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Yeah. We yeah. really appreciate it. <laughs> well, you guys have a wonderful day and happy holidays. Thank yeah. you. You too. Mm -hmm.